Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. Okay, for the next few moments, I want to talk about insights into the amazing race. Insights into the amazing race. Do you have a chair I can sit in? You got a high chair? Bring me a chair real quick. Let me sit in a chair. Is that, that's not big enough. I'm going to be a shorty in that one. You got a high one? Can you, they're gonna, okay, just take your time. I'm not going to pass out anytime soon. Just get a high chair, high chair. I don't sit in a high chair. That's a baby's thing. <laughs> Christians, if you go to the New Testament, the Christian life is compared to three things. Number one, a soldier. Number two, a farmer. And number three, an athlete. The soldier's reference is Ephesians 6. The farmer's reference is Mark 4. The athlete's reference is Hebrew 12. When Jesus was talking about, or should I say Paul was talking about, that's beautiful. Thank you, brother. When Paul was talking about the aspect of being a, a soldier, he was writing that predominantly to Gentile believers in the book of Ephesians. When Jesus talked about the farming aspect of sowing the seed and the word of God and getting your harvest, he's preaching that to the multitude of common people. When Paul talked about in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, the athlete, he's basically talking to Jewish believers. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 2, we're going to read this together. This is the main scripture. And uh, Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 2 says this, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, everybody in this place, the moment you became a Christian, your whole situation changed. Everything about you changed. Before you were saved, your battle was over your eternal life. Satan didn't want you to have it. Now that you're saved, your battle is over your destiny. See, it's a difference. Your battle now is over the will of God and fulfilling the assignments of God that you have in your life. It shifted the moment you took on a redemptive covenant. But one of the things you're doing, believe this or not, is you are running a race. And you're running this race to a certain point of time that only God himself knows. It'll either be the, it'll either be the rapture and the coming of the Lord that ends your race. Or in the book of Hebrews, it'll be death that will end your race. Only God has that time set. We don't know when that time is. So you will consistently run until... You complete your course or complete your race. Now, I have learned something, and I'm going to give you some stuff that I have practically learned in almost 40 years of ministry that's going to help a lot of you this morning. There are three times in your race that you're going to get hit by the enemy. Three times. Number one is the beginning of your race. Number two is in the middle of your race. And number three is at the end of your race. All right? And everything in between is just puffing stuff. But you're going to be hit those three times, and I want to explain it to you. The enemy hits you at the beginning of your walk with God to discourage you. The enemy hits you in the middle of your walk with God to distract you. The enemy hits you at the end of your race to try to discourage you. So you have to deal with discouragement. You have to deal with distraction. And when you get to the end, well, let me, let me break it down this way because I, I made a note here, and this will help you understand it better. In the beginning of your race, you're going to fight frustration. In the middle of your race, you will fight fatigue. In the end of your race, you will fight failures. 
Now, the beginning of the race, the frustration example is Simon Peter, who says he knows the Lord. I'm not going to deny the Lord. He denies the Lord. He goes and cries and has to go back and repent. I mean, this guy's really just messed up. Isn't it amazing how God has always used messed up people? Talk to me, somebody. Not perfect people, but obedient people. Not perfect people, but willing people. So Peter is an example of a guy who's starting out in ministry, and he's just up and down like a roller coaster or consistently frustrated. I wish I had more time to give you the examples. Number two, in the middle of your race, now middle will be this. Okay, I've been preaching for 40 years, and I honestly can't remember when I accepted the Lord. I know I did somewhere, but I was raised in church and started praying when I was a kid, and I've always believed in God. So in my lifetime, I realize that I'm in the middle, maybe toward the ending, because if God gives me 10, 20, or 30 years, you're in the middle of your race. But the thing you deal with is fatigue. Moses was 120 years of age when he died. The first 40 years was in Pharaoh's house. The second 40 years was watching his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. And the last 40 years was pastoring a group of people in the wilderness. And if you'll read your Bible, Jethro jumped all over Moses in the wilderness and said, you are going to wear yourself out trying to deal with everybody's problems. So Moses battled when he smote the rock twice, when he got frustrated and broke the commandment stones, was he was absolutely fatigued and wore out with having to deal with the problems. How many of you know that fatigue will cause you to make crazy decisions sometimes? All right. Number three, there'll be a battle toward the end of your life. And this is the example of David. David served God. As a matter of fact, it says this about David. One verse of scripture. In everything, I'm paraphrasing, everything in David's life, he obeyed God with the exception of Uriah the Hittite's wife. The guy obeyed God all the way, but he got toward the end of his life. In the book of Psalms, he said middle life. Maybe that's where the idea of midlife crisis comes from. I don't know. But he got in the middle of his life and he had a major failure that became the only thing you can find that was against him. So here's the, here we go again. Frustration in the beginning, fatigue in the middle, failure toward the end. Now, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25 says, do, not, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who completes for, competes for the prize is temperate or moderate in all things. Paul used the analogy of running a race nine times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9, 25, for example. Here's what he said. These are some phrases from some of the verses. They which run, run the race. All these are Paul's words in the New Testament. The person who runs is temperate in all things. Run, but not with uncertainty. You ran well. What did hinder you? Now, classical Greek writers, now remember the Olympics are something that actually originated with the Greeks. And everybody here should know what the Olympics are. But the classical Greek writers, when talking about the athletes that did the Olympics, left us some notes about what they would tell those who wanted to come in first place. Here's a quote, ready? Do you wish to gain the prize at the Olympic games? Consider the preparations and the consequences. You must observe and have a strict regiment. You must live off of food that is unpleasant. I have high diabetes, glucose levels, diabetes, and I'm telling you something, they've knocked out 70% of the good tasting food. Come on, somebody help me. 
and I'm going to heaven, and I'm telling you the first thing I'm having at the marriage supper is a banana split. And if they don't have it, I'm going to have an angel make one. You hear me? I might have four or five before it's the day's over with. Okay. So let's go back to this. You must abstain from all delicacies because they knew that a lot of the wrong foods coming into the body could do what? Slow the person down. You must exercise yourself at the precise time in heat and in cold. You must drink nothing cool and you must take no wine. So all these restrictions are placed on the athletes who want to come in first place during the Olympic Games. Now, let's go to the games. Uh, it's a little bit like it was back in the early days, but the stadium was back in that day, and it was called a stadium, was about 604 foot long, and it was oblong. You know what I'm saying by that? Curved around the ends, long curve, long curve, long curve. The seats around it were in tiers. You sat a group here, and then behind them was a group, and behind them was a group, and some of them went up quite extensively. Now, the center is where all the activity took place because the center was two large rectangles, but there were three markers. Now, this is important. This is a part I want to get into before I get into the main part of the message. There were several markers, three actual markers that were placed so the runners could see. Number one. These were called obelisks. They were stone markers. Just picture a miniature Washington Monument about four foot high. One was placed right at the beginning line. So in other words, where everybody lined up, you had this marker that everybody had to line up right where the marker was. Then, at the, and this is important, then there was a marker that was placed in the middle. Now, the thing about the middle marker was this is where the, the winner's wreaths were kept. There was a person there that would hold them during the entire race so that the runners could see the prize as they were coming around. So they're coming, watch this, this is so cool. So halfway through, they remind you there's a reward for all the work you did. Right? So in other words, what God does with you is he will remind you in your entire Christian walk. I've been preaching almost, this is hard to believe, almost 40 years uh, 16 years of age all the way to 56. In fact, April will be my first message I preached 40 years ago. June will be a uh, 40-year anniversary. All of our partners coming to Cleveland. We're going to have a big anniversary on uh, the partners' homecoming. And I'm going to be whipping out the videos that are 35 to 40 years old. And we're going to show clips. And you will not believe. You will crack yourself up watching this stuff. So anyway, let me say this. So having done this, I know the significance of being reminded that my work is not in vain, that the study is not in vain. Now, I have teased. I don't know that this will happen. When my grandfather passed away, I should say before he passed away, he had this dream. He said, Perry, I had the most odd dream. I saw heaven. And I said, well, granddad, what did you see? He said, I saw a mansion. Literally, it's a mansion. And it's really big and it's very beautiful. And gold light was coming out of the windows, a gold looking light. I said, well, that may be a reflection because of what it looks like on the inside. He said, but the weird part was there was another little house right beside of it. And I said, well, what do you think that means? He said, well, your grandmother has put up with me a long time. They were married 65 years when he passed away, 66. And he said, she's been the behind the scenes backbone. So I'm convinced <laughs> he had a place where he lived in West Virginia, right behind the house called the dog house. 
And it wasn't a doghouse. It had a bed in there and it had, in fact, he, he actually built it for the family when they would come up. And his recording equipment was in there. So every now and then, grandma would tell him if she got upset with him, I'm going to send you to the doghouse. He said, the mansion must be hers and I get the doghouse right beside her. Apparently, that's what God shows me. I have teased for many years, but yet I'm sincere about this, that I hope, and only God knows this, but I hope that I've been faithful enough to the word because see, I've never denied the word. I've never denied the spirit. I've never denied the power of the name of Jesus. I've never denied the nine gifts. I've never denied the power of the blood. I've never denied the speaking in tongues as the Holy Spirit baptism. I've never denied him at all in anything or any way. And I hope that by preaching his uncompromised word and following him, that I'll have a crown so big that somebody who didn't give one will be hired to haul mine around on a cart. Does anybody understand where I'm coming from? I'm going to say this to you, and I mean this sincerely. I am not just working down here to get something. Because I have enough sense to know, no matter how hard you and I work down here, we will leave it behind eventually. And can I tell you something about your lovely children and relatives? Money makes people stupid. And money makes people do crazy things. Jensen told me one time at Free Chapel, they had a funeral and they had an open coffin and had the family come by. It was a bunch of girls in the family. They said, now they weren't really saved, but we let them use the church. The mama served God, but the girls hadn't. And for some reason, they had the mama with all of her rings on her finger. This is a true story. And she had a little diamond here. Well, I don't know. The funeral home must not have paid attention or the family never got to them. So they're standing there. The girls are standing there. Mama's in the coffin, and the one says, well, she promised me that diamond, so I'm going to get it right now. The other one said, oh, no, she didn't. She promised me that diamond, and they took her mama's corpse and started pulling on the hands and the fingers and like to dumped her on the floor at the church. Thank God nobody was there to see it. Are y'all hearing me? People would do crazy things. But your reward, and I, this is what I believe about rewards. I believe God blesses you to have stuff here. I do believe, however, it's possible for you to overemphasize and invest. I don't know why I'm preaching this, but I need to tell this. It's possible for you to spend too much time of taking the money you make and buying the cars and the homes and the apartments and the investments here and ignore the things of God, meaning that when you leave this life and stand before God, your reward will have already been given in this life. So it's very important that you know how to split this thing up, that you know how to live good here and prosperous here, which God does bless us that way. But also it's important for you to know that you must invest in the kingdom, both your time, your prayers, and your giving, so that when we stand before him and the rewards are given, there will be a reward. Five different crowns will be given on that day. Special rulership in the millennial kingdom will be given on that day. A lot of things that maybe we don't even know about will be given on that day. He said, if you've been faithful over little things, I am going to make you ruler over many. Then there is a marker at the end of the race. So in other words, when you start the race off, you're marked. Then as you're, as you're running the race, you get to every now and then catch a glimpse of if I can do this thing right and finish strong, I'm going to have a reward. 
And then as, on your, as you go 604 feet on that last leg of that race, you've seen them do this in the Olympics, the baton races. Suddenly, that's when you want to kick in and you want to make that last one the strongest one. You want to do more toward the end. You want to have more impact. I feel the Holy Ghost. You want to have more impact in the end. You want to reach more people in the finish line. And so that's why you have to remain strong. And he puts a marker there so you can see the finish line. This is what Hebrews 12 and 2 meant when it said this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of the faith. Now, please notice this. There's a mark in the beginning, and that's where one of your battles begins, the starting point. There's a mark in the middle. That's where one of your battles are, right in the middle of your race. There's a mark at the end. That's where some of your battles can be at the end. Now, let me make this an application that everybody here can understand. Number one, everybody starts their race with excitement. I love new converts because new converts, when they know what God has done for them, are the funnest people to watch follow God of anybody else. I've watched in the South and Southeast people who've been in church all their life that I promise you, if I didn't know better, I would have thought somebody baptized them in vinegar, (laughs) maybe even pickle juice of some kind, beet juice. I don't know, but they're, they're not as happy as they should be. They're bored with their Christianity. Church has become nothing but a routine. They don't look forward to anything happening in the kingdom. And so I don't want you to start your race that way. It's amazing to watch believers who first come to God, the excitement they have. I'm running this race. I have an opportunity to win a prize. I have an opportunity to do something for God. Now, in the middle of the race, if you've watched runners that run a long race, there is a tiredness that begins to kick in. Their heart rate is up. The adrenaline has been flowing. They start breathing hard. I went down to the gym at the hotel the other day and worked out. And I'm over there lifting weights. I know you can tell it's really made a difference in me, I'm sure. I told brother here on the front row, I said, you know, when I, you know, when I, when I stand up, brother, I just want to say something. I'm going to, can I just stand up? I'm going to brag on you, pastor. When I, yeah, I, I got to do this. I'm not going to embarrass you, but this is funny. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have a body like his. I guarantee you. That's one thing I'm going to ask Jesus for. I want some buff on me. Come on. I, I look too much like a Pentecostal scarecrow. I need some help in this place. I got a Bowflex machine and get tired looking at it. You understand what I'm saying? I get on it five minutes and get to thinking about a sermon I need to write and I get off of it and go write a sermon. I'm telling you, it's crazy. I need a, I, need, <laughs> I think I need, what do they call it? A workout person, a trainer. I think I need somebody to help me with this thing. All right. Middle of the race, you get tired. You start, you, that's the middle of the race is where you can get so tired. If you're not careful, you'll start backing up. You won't run as fast. You won't get as serious. You'll get distracted by other things. But then you've got to have, anybody ever heard of a runner getting a second wind? Now, look, I've not run enough to understand that. I tried out for basketball one time, and they made us run a mile under so many minutes, and I never got my second wind. I passed out when I got to the end of the thing, okay? So I don't understand this. I don't understand second winds, but they say it can happen. So you've got to have the second wind in the latter part of your life to continue. Now, here's the enemy's goals. At the beginning of your race, he would like for you to quit when you get started. The enemy lies to people and tells them it's hard to serve the Lord. Or he tells them something like this. You've got to give up too much. Now, what are you really going to give up serving the Lord? Have you? I'm going to tell you, here's what you give up getting saved. Ready? Hell. You give it up. You lose it. 
Well, I may have to give up smoking. Well, that just means you're going to live longer. Well, I may have, up, have to give up smoking my grass. Well, that means you're going to work harder. Some of you will get that and some of you won't. That lazy spirit will come out of you. Well, I may have to give up my alcohol. Well, look, I, I know guys that ended up in jail, ended up having car wrecks, ended up uh, with cirrhosis of the liver. So you really didn't give up anything there. So really, when the Lord tells you to get right with him and serve him, anything God tells a person to give up is only to better them mentally, physically, and spiritually and help them live longer. You go, you go check it out. Everything the Lord would say, lay aside the weight. Wait, now see, some of the things, some of the things might not be sins, but they're weights. And they're weights to you physically. They're weights to you mentally. They're weights to you emotionally. So when you lay them aside, you feel better. You run faster. And so God's not going to tell you to give up something that's going to be good for you. In the middle of your waist, wait, your race, he won the middle of your waist. Know where that came from. In the middle of your race, he wants you to quit right dead in the middle. Now, I want to explain to you why the devil, whoo, this thing ain't got no back on it. Help us, Jesus. We're going to fall out in the spirit right here. Somebody going somebody to really think the Holy Ghost showed up this first service. Stone fell right off the seat in the middle of service and laid there. Now, let me explain to you why the enemy wants you to quit right in the middle of your walk with God. Ready? Because a whole lot of people have watched you run. A lot of people know you're a believer. A lot of people have watched you run and they've watched your testimony. So you've been witnessing to them for 10 years. Now, all of a sudden you decide you're tired of it or somebody's hurt you. The church has offended you. Now you're going to quit and give up right before you've got a bunch of friends that have been watching you for years thinking about the God that you serve. Now, what will it say to them when you quit and give up? It will wreck your testimony. And then they will say this, how can I serve that God? If he can't help you through your problem, there's no way he'll help me through mine. Give an example of this. And I, I don't like to use these kind of examples. I really don't. But there was a very well-known ministry years ago. I watched him all the time on TV. Everybody here that's older, no doubt watched him. Now, he could preach real hard on sin. There was nobody probably in the country that preached any harder than he did on sin. The amazing thing was that a lot of unsaved husbands that never went to church, even in my meetings, their wives would come, their wives had gotten saved, they respected me, but they wouldn't come to church and get saved. Never missed this guy's preaching. I could name them. I could name David up in Virginia. I could name these men that, that watched this guy faithfully. Now, these men would say something like this because I heard him. Well, I'll tell you what. Now, this is how they said it back where I'm from. If I ever get religion, well, it's not religion, first of all, it's an experience with God, but they'd say it this way, well, if I ever get religion, I want it like that man's got it, because man, that man's got it. I can tell he's got it by the way he talks. I can feel something when he speaks. All right, now here's what happens. So this man had run this race a long time. Well, he had a problem, had a situation, became known around the world. And what happened was the men who had looked to him saying, I want to be like him, here's what they said, because they said it to me, man... If that guy can't make this thing work, I have no chance. Now, look, they were forgiving of the guy. It wasn't that. But their attitude was this. As strict as he was and as much Bible as he knew and as much prayer as he prayed, if this don't work for him, man, I'm not even close to this. So their attitude was, there's no use in me even trying 
because there's no way for me to even make it. Now, here's my point. That's why you can't just stop and quit in the middle of a race because all the people who are watching you run would like to see you run and get a prize. Even the people who might not like you, believe it or not, don't want to see you fail. Even your family that persecutes you because you're a Christian, they don't want to see you quit church, give up, quit reading the Bible. You know why they don't want you to quit? Can I tell you why? Because you might not think they respect you, but wait till they get in trouble. Wait till they get cancer. Wait till the grandbaby is in the hospital from an accident. Wait until something bad happens. You know where they run? They're going to say, look, I know we ain't got along, and I know I've been fussing at you, and I know, but hey, I need some prayer. So is there any way that you can get a hold of God? And if you've decided to quit and go over on the line and just hang around and do your thing, and they're coming to you, you won't have the confidence you need at that moment to call on the name of the Lord. But if you've been running, and you're still, I'm talking to somebody in this place. If you're running, and you're still running, and you're determined to run, then when they call you for prayer, you can say, hold on here. Let me stop in my tracks for a moment. Give me your hands. I'm going to lay my hands on your head and we're going to pray right now in the name of Jesus. Come on. And then, and then when God moves, what does it become? It becomes a testimony to them. And all of a sudden they say, I think I'm going to serve the God you got. Now, the, the latter part of your life, I'm going to show you something here that's really, really bizarre. But the latter part of everybody's life in here. Now, the latter part doesn't mean right before you die. It just means in the latter part of your life, there will be things that will happen toward the conclusion of your race to try to defeat you in your mind or your heart or your spirit. Now, let's go through this real quick. The beginning stage is frustration. Simon Peter, outspoken, I'll not deny you. He denies him. I want to walk on water. He sinks in the water. He runs around saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom. And he thinks he's the greatest in the kingdom. So all of you listen to me. If you're first generation new Christians, there's going to be a lot of people out there try to discourage you with their words, or they're going to try to pull you away from what you know you should be doing. When I got called to preach, my biggest battle, honestly, was with discouragement. I did not go the system. I did not go the way every young minister went in the denomination because I was on a fast and prayer. Jensen, uh, I met Jensen right, uh, right after Pam and I were married, so I didn't know him then, Pastor Jensen. But uh, him and I kind of had the same way of thinking on this thing. And when uh, a preacher walked up to me and he said, are you going to go to the Bible school for the denomination. And I said, no, I'm t I'll take courses on the road, but I'm not going. I've got a different thing. He looked at me and he said, oh man, you're never going to amount to nothing. Now, how would you like a man who's a pastor in the state where you're going to evangelize? Look at you. And I had three pastors tell me, you're not going to make it, son. If you don't do it this way, you're not going to make it. So listen, I found out a long time ago what you or anybody else thinks about me does not define me. I am defined, I am defined by my relationship with God and my family. And as long as I got them standing with me and my close friends standing with me, God standing with me, then it doesn't matter who tries to divine, define me or put me in their little religious box. Because I found out a long time ago, God used to live on a box called the ark. And when the veil was torn, God came out of the box. And you can't put him in a box anymore. So remember the frustration. Now, in the middle of your life, here's Moses. This is hilarious. Moses 
is told by the Lord to pastor 600,000 men. In fact, 605,000 to be exact. A lot of these men over 20 are married. So let's double that to 1.2 million husbands and wives. Now, a lot of them had children. We know that because the firstborn in Egypt was spared. So a lot of them put blood on the door. Why? Because they had a firstborn son. We could estimate. Now think about this. We could estimate that Moses brought out 1.8 million total people to 2.5 million. Now, wait a minute. Million and God tells him to pastor this bunch. And they are living in tents in the middle of a hot desert with one stream of water coming from a huge rock, having manna every morning. Ladies and gentlemen, I feel sorry for 40 years of Moses pastoring. I can't take people on a church picnic without somebody breaking a leg. Some kid falling in the creek and almost drowning. Somebody getting bit by something. I'm telling you, so here's what Moses happened. He's in the middle of his ministry. He's actually at the highlight of his life. God has spoken to him. God has crushed an empire called Egypt because of the rod that he had in his hand. Drowned Pharaoh's army. You think he would be so excited. Now watch. He gets in the desert, deals with their problems, and asks God to kill him. Just kill me. Just kill me. I don't want to deal with her anymore. It's God like God. God's like, look at him saying, if I kill you, then who's going to take this bunch? So he had to put up with a whole lot of junk. You thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? Yeah. He put up with a whole lot of junk every day. I mean, 10 times they complained and God sent snakes and bit them. One time they built a gold calf. God killed 3,000 of them. Another time all the women of Moab started jumping in the tents with all the guys and they got to doing their thing. And God said, this is crazy. These are Moab women. Get them out of here. Judgment hit them there. I mean, every time you turn around, they're not listening to anything God says. And Moses has got to deal with these people and try to get them to the edge of the promised land. And he's wearing himself out. Till God finally says, divide them up in heads of thousands, heads of hundreds, put captains over them and give me your 70 elders and let me put the anointing that I got on you on those men so you don't have to deal with everybody's problems. Let them go to the thousand. The thousand can then take it to the hundred. The hundred can take it to the captain. Then if the captain can't solve the problem, then let them come to you. And that was the greatest divine order set up in the, that, that literally, actually, can I say this? Kept Moses from losing his mind. You got to understand, he grew up a basket case. Because they found him in a basket. Read your Bible. Now you're getting it. Now I get it now, Mabel. I got it now. That's good, wasn't it? They found him in a basket as a baby in the Nile River. So he was a basket case from the very beginning. But God helped him to keep from loosening his mind by sharing this. Now, the third stage is what I call the stage of failure. David, God's man, after God's own heart, God's heart player, God's giant killer, killing bears and lions, taking out Philistines, who absolutely adored God with all of his heart, makes this statement, I am weak this day, though anointed king. Now, he is anointed to lead the nation, 
but he is so weak emotionally and mentally and physically, he has struggles and he has difficulties the latter part of his life. I want to tell you something about this. This is real important. One of the things that the enemy tries to do in the Bible, if I say in the Bible, to the men of God is get them to the end of their life and try to attack them at the very end of their life. Now, the reason for this is very clear, is to try to destroy the reputation that those men have built throughout their entire ministry. Here's an example. Paul, did you know that Nero, the emperor of Rome, wanted to tear down Rome and built Neropolis with temples with his statue in it, and the Senate said no. He then had some men set Rome on fire. 80% of the city was burnt, and then he didn't have anybody to blame, and he blamed the Christians. He blamed Paul for an uprising. Now, this is really wild. Now, what's sad is Paul, at the end of his life, said, all men have forsaken me. Do you know why? Because the Christians believed a lie started by a demon man by the name of Nero. Paul burnt the city down. Paul burnt the city down. Paul was arrested and be, he, hey, read the Bible, the last part of Acts. He lived in Rome free, no man hindering him. But when Nero burnt the place down, blamed it on him, they believed it had Paul arrested. Paul in 2 Timothy is about to be beheaded over a lie. Come on, you didn't hear what I just said. He's a Roman citizen. You can't just kill a Roman citizen. It's against the law. But because Nero charged him with burning the city down, that's a capital crime. Paul is beheaded and everybody who loved him has suddenly left him. And here, I, man, this is awful. Here's a guy that gave his life for the gospel. Second Corinthians 11, he's got 22 things he fights, gets to the end of his ministry. And somebody tells a lie on him that, did y'all not know this? Is that not crazy? And that's why he's beheaded. And he only has a few friends left. And he said, come before winter and bring my coat. Because he only has a few friends left who really believe this guy had nothing to do with this burning. Preach on, I'm going to. Jude 9, the last attack on Moses was Satan tried to bring an accusation. Michael the archangel fought the devil over the body of Moses because Satan tried to bring an accusation against Moses. Genesis 9, 22. Noah, Noah, 500 years old, okay, has kids. 600 years old, finishes a boat. Goes 150 days through a flood. Gets out, gets a vineyard, gets drunk, and lays around in a tent naked. Come on, somebody. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to cut the man some slack because if I'd have been stuck in a ship with all those stinking animals for 150 days, I'd probably ran out naked too when it was all just struck all over. Ain't no, hey, ain't nobody out there to see him. Everybody's dead. Come on, somebody. You can run around naked because everybody's dead. Anybody going to see you run around naked? But the problem was, if you read the Bible, it brought a curse on Canaan. So in other words, at the end, here's this guy that he's perfect before God. He builds the ark. He does all these things. But he gets to this moment in his life where he just whatever. I don't know what happened. He just said, I'm tired. I'm chilling out. And he goes, gets drunk, ends up naked, ends up seeing his grandson curse. Now, the, the point I'm making is the end of the race, the end of the life. The last attack on Gideon. He takes 300 men, beats the Midianites, but he gets an offering of gold, builds an ephod, and Israel started worshiping the ephod in Judges 8.27. 
The last attack on Paul, as I said, was a lie started against him that he started a fire which he did not. What is the last lie ever spoken about Jesus? Actually, there's two. When he was living before the crucifixion, they lied on him in Matthew 26 and 65, and they said he is a blasphemer, which he was not. So watch this now. He's crucified based on a lie. Hello. Thank you, brother, for that amen. Paul is beheaded because of a lie. Are y'all understanding where I'm getting to on this? They're trying to get these people at the end because they say, if we can say he's a blasphemer, then nobody's going to follow him. If we can say Paul burnt the place down, we can wreck his reputation with the Christians. See, that was the whole idea. They're willing to start lies on these guys just to try to hinder them so people will pull away from them. A lie. All right. Then the last attack on Jesus, when Jesus is resurrected, listen, they're still lying on him. He's raised from the dead. And do you know what that lie was? Why the disciples stole the body. We were sleeping. No, that's stupid. Because if you read Roman law, if you were guarding something that had a Roman seal on it, you couldn't sleep the entire time you were guarding it. Or you could be burnt alive with your entire military outfit on. They would pour a liquid on you and set you on fire. That is a fact. Go study Roman history. And not one of those soldiers died when Jesus came out of the grave. And they're running around saying, they got the body. They got the, the disciples got the body. Will you tell me how can a dead man heal a man in Acts chapter 3 that's been crippled all of his life? How can a dead man send the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues on the day of Pentecost. How can a dead man open up a blind man's eyes in the book of Acts? If Jesus was dead, you should pray in his name and nothing happened, but he is not dead. Jesus is alive. And hey, so here's the word for you. Word number one, press toward the mark. What did Paul say? I press toward the mark, the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Now, before he said that, he said this. This is a clue for every, key for everybody here. To effectively look forward, you can't look backward. Forgetting those things which are behind, doesn't matter how, your mama, how bad your mama was, your daddy was, how you were raised, you're, you're not a kid anymore. So don't look back. Forgetting the things that are behind and reaching for the things that are before, I press toward the mark, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. See, Paul knew for me to run forward, I can't run backwards. You run backwards, you're going to trip and fall. So what did Paul say? Press toward the mark. What was the mark? Ready? The oblesque column at the end of the race. That's what he's referring to. He said, I'm looking for the prize. Uh, he's, he's using the Olympic term. I'm running this thing, and right over there is the judge on the bema, and he's got the wreath in his hand of gold that he's going to put on my head if I can finish this thing. Everybody with me? You getting it? So what I got to do is I got to keep looking forward and run. I have to set the pace, and I have to run. Now, the second thing was this. Lay aside the weight. Now, this is going to sound a little crude, but when these Olympic runners ran and exercised, they did it sometimes almost completely naked, and they did it with a little loincloth on to make them as light as possible so that they could run faster, not being bogged down by the weight. 
And then it says the sin. Now the word the sin is real interesting in Greek because when you have the word the in front of a specific word, it means a specific sin. So watch this, lay aside the weight and the sin that does beset you. So what Paul is talking about here is this. There are things that are weights. There are things that are sins. But he says there's the one thing that weighs you down. And they said, now, if you really want to run fast and you want to really run strong, you got to make yourself as light and as free from stuff as you possibly can. You can't be weighed down with cares of this life, deceitfulness of riches, lust of other things, and run as fast as God wants you to run because somewhere along the way, you're going to get tired. You're going to get fatigued. You're going to get weary. You're going to say, this isn't worth it. You're going to want to give. And this is why Paul said in the Old Testament, it said they gird up their loins and they ran. They wore robes back then. They would take the back of the rope and pull it up. And the robe was actually was up here above the knees now, and they would tuck it into the belt, and you can't run with the robe. So girding up the loins is to gird. Now, here's what Jesus said. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. Now, I'm going to say this to you, and I'm going to close. This is so true. It is not how fast you can run the race. It's can you endure to the end. Don't ever look at people who are out there man zooming and running fast. I can remember. Can I tell a story? Why am I asking you? Of course I can. I'm preaching. I got two stories. This will be over. I remember an evangelist that came to Florida many years ago running 10 and 15,000. And he hadn't been preaching but a year and a half. And I'm up there preaching for 15, 20 years and can't get a thousand people to show up at my meetings. And then I'm with a lady. If I called her name, a lot of you would know her. I'm taking her back to the airport. She was getting ready to have a conference with 15,000 women. And we were laughing. I said, how come that you've been preaching seven years? This was a long time ago, by the way. Seven years. And now you got 15,000 women coming to a dome down there, packing it out. And I can't get, uh, I can't get hardly 2,000 people to come to my meeting. And she looked at me and she said this, because you're too deep. And I said, what's that supposed to mean? She said, uh, if she said, let me say this to you. When I get up and preach, I talk about how my daddy committed suicide. I talk about the things I've gone through. It's like Joyce Meyer. You tell me who in the world can get anointed preaching on PMS except Joyce Meyer. <laughs> Joyce is my, I know, I know the whole family real good. I can say this. I, I said, Joyce, you're crazy. I preach on PMS. They'll all get offended and run out on me. You know, I can't do that. Of course, I shouldn't be doing that, I guess, because I'm a man. No, Joyce could say, yeah, me and Dave like to kill each other the other day. Oh, yeah, come on, come on, Joyce, tell it like it is, you know. She'll, Joyce will tell you anything. You know she will. So she says to me, and she talked about Joyce and her and some of the other, she said, the thing about us is we're basic, very simple. But she says, if I ever go to preach at your conference, I study for a week. And I said, why? She said, because your people are meat eaters. She said, there has never been, she said, the reason that everybody don't come and hear you is when you start getting deep, they don't have enough knowledge in the word to know where you're going. Does that make sense to anybody? But they said, the thing about your people are, they are so word centered that if they get, when they get saved and come in under you, they make the best church members and the best workers for the kingdom because they're heavy, heavy into the word. So you know what I decided? I'm saying this for a reason. I decided to be me. I can't be, look, I love the Osteens. I love Joel. He's really a good looking guy and I don't look at guys that way. But look, I can't, I can't smile like Joel. I ain't got the teeth. Okay. 
I just made up my mind. I can't be like Joel. I can't, you know, Joel's great, but you know, he, he's got, he, he needs to write a book called Your Best Smile Now. I'm going to give him the idea. I'm going to text him and tell him it's a, that's a great idea, Joe. Get, a, get the best teeth now. See, I can't be like a Joyce. I, that's not my message. I can't be like Joel because he's a unique young man. I have to be Perry. Now, here's the thing. You have to be who you are. You can't let people pressuring you to run like them. Because you got short legs and they got long legs. Guess who's going to be in front all the time? Lay aside things that weigh you down so you can run. Gird up your loins. And I want to say it again. Not how fast you run, but can you finish strong? The one guy that used to preach to 15,000 people now has a church with about 500. And now God's having, letting me have crowds of two, three, four thousand people. See, I just kept running. Minding my business, trying to keep focused. For closing story. In the 1940s, the Baptist magazine reported on... The young men that would be, they called them the next Babe Ruth of evangelism. Two men, Bron Clifford and Chuck Templeton. At the same time, there was a young preacher called Billy Graham that was preaching that was not even listed. Bron Clifford and Chuck Templeton were in their 20s, having crowds of five to 10,000 people in some of their meetings. Billy Graham was just getting started. They named Bron Clifford and Chuck Templeton as the two next Baptist preachers that would reach the world. Ten years later, one of them had left the ministry and had become a commentator and eventually went to work at a school and basically left the ministry as we know it. The other one had a problem that people didn't know about and ended up getting cirrhosis of the liver and he died early. And the one that nobody paid attention to, the one that dated a girl, Billy Graham, who went to school for one year at Bob Jones University in Cleveland, Tennessee, in my hometown. First year he went to school was there in Cleveland. And dated a girl who said, I'm not marrying you because you ain't going to amount to nothing. (laughs) The man that nobody believed in still lives and is the legend of Christianity in modern time. And the difference was two quit for different reasons. And one just kept on going and going, like the Energizer, Energizer Bunny, and going and going and going, and just said, I'm, I'm just going. Like it or not, I'm going. I'm going to keep running. And that's the amazing thing about the race. If you have been serving God any length of time and you're saved, raise your hand. All the people. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are blessed.